This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at new movies in theaters and hooks them up to some familiar and unfamiliar favorites from the past. My name is Stephen Cook. And I'm Karsten Knox. And today we're going back to the future with a return to the world of Blade Runner in the new sequel, long-awaited, to the Ridley Scott original from 1982, Blade Runner 2049. So I can't even remember when I first saw Blade Runner. It's been kind of a part of my cinematic life uh, as long I mean I was in my teens or close to it when it came out originally and I remember the original version but what's fascinating about that film is how over the years it's sort of been rediscovered and reinterpreted and of course it's been re-released in these different versions and everyone if you talk to a fan of Blade Runner everyone has like their favorite version and people will will advocate for early ones for later ones for the last ones and uh and of course discuss all of its ambiguities and i think that's part of the reason it's it's uh it's still beloved uh that and its unbelievable look it's the world that ridley scott created i think that people really love about it uh it's either because when you talk about blade runner you're either talking about whether rick deckard the harrison ford character is a replicant which is you know, he plays a detective looking, trying to track down and eliminate these rogue androids. Uh, and the big question is whether he's one himself. Or you're talking about the music, the visuals, the incredible uh, world that, that Scott made uh, on these, largely on these sets uh, in the Warner Brothers backlot. Uh, you know, and, uh, and, and I mean, that's for me, that's the thing that's most resonant uh, you know, I'm okay. I'm. I got some time to discuss the film's various versions and the various things it's trying to say about humanity. But really, when I think about that film, it's it's living in it. It's it's that incredible vision of the future with that amazing Vangelis or Vangelis soundtrack. Uh, I just never get tired to hearing that music. It's just amazing. Yeah, I didn't see it on initial release. I was aware of it at the time, and I I I think I wonder if maybe if. It was even restricted, maybe when it came out, because uh, I can't think of the life of me why I wouldn't have gone to see this when it came out. You know, the fact that it was starring Harrison Ford, who was you know coming off of uh, not one but I think two Star Wars films by that point, and and, and uh, Raiders as well, and the first out. Raiders, yeah, wow. and uh, and just the the fact that it was you know a hard science fiction title, which was you know there are few and far between in the theaters in those days. Um, I did catch it on the big screen uh, when Wormwoods brought it back for a revival screening at some point, and this would have been the this was before director's cuts or anything like that. I think they just got a print of it and showed it uh, at some point, um, you know, a few years later. And that's uh, I think I would have seen it on home video first, like just a crappy pan and scan videotape from uh, from Embassy Embassy Home Video that had the rights to it for whatever reason, not Warner Brothers, um, and. Uh, you know, and in a cut that inserted a few extra shots of violence that weren't in the theatrical. So that's the first sort of altered version of Blade Runner that came along after the theatrical release where uh, Tyrell's murder is a little gorier. Mm-hmm. And I think there was some extra violence in uh, some of the other fight scenes. Yeah. And what have you. Um, before Ridley kind of 
completely rearranged it with uh, with extra shots that nobody had seen before and that kind of thing. Uh, and and you know I loved it right away. I just I, I loved the music. I loved the you know this is kind of really the, the first instance of kind of cyberpunk because it had there was like a, a sort of a punk rock aesthetic to a lot of, like a lot of elements of this film from from just some of the extras that were in some of the crowd scenes to uh, to uh, Daryl Hannah's makeup and, and look as as her character as the one of the replicants that uh, that Deckard is after and 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 you know and and. Rutger Hauer uh, as as Roy Batty just kind of looked like Sting, I guess. You know the the spiky bleach blonde hair. Uh, you know he he just looked like he'd come straight out of a, a London nightclub circa 1977. So uh, you know the, everything about it attracted to, attracted me to it. Um, you know, and I loved the storyline. And if, in fact, I, you know, I don't know when it occurred to me that that maybe maybe Deckard is a replicant himself and not, not human. I, I, I don't think that was in people's minds when the f- film first came out. Not for the first 10 years. It was the director's cut that really yeah. brought that home. And, and Ridley Scott taking away the voiceover, which he never liked, and he felt that he had to be compromised. Like, that was one of the things that the studio wanted. So he took away the voiceover. He added the scenes of, of Deckard's sort of dream life, uh, dreaming of, of unicorns. And then he took away the, hap- the so-called happy ending, where Rachel and Deckard escape into some uh, place that's not a city and <laughs> seem quite happy to do so. And, oh, and by the way, Rachel may not only be around four years. Like, that, that whole <laughs> thing, the built-in obsolescence of the, uh, of the replicants is the issue that, uh, <clears throat> that you know, gets discussed. I, uh, and they uh, use outtake footage from The Shining yeah, yeah. to portray the, the ending of them driving away into some natural paradise which yeah. probably doesn't exist because as we, as we can see the earth is a wasteland <laughs> yeah yeah um and i can understand why scott was was reluctant to you know go there uh but i guess the original test screenings for the film were not warm so they had to do something um you know and, and i think but the critics really who might have been a little more hard on the film when it first was released and it wasn't a hit and i don't think the critics particularly liked it that much when it first came out but the director's cut reassessed it for a lot of people and a lot of people were like okay this is truly a masterpiece after all and we we need to get back on board with this and uh you know, it's funny. I can't think of another film where the different versions have all been sort of accepted and have, have furthered the reputation of the film to the point where the 2007 edition, the final cut, which is very close to the director's cut. It's just, I think, the special effects have been cleaned up a bit. It's a cleaner print, and uh, it's a better digitized, better-looking yeah. film. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, in preparing for the release of the sequel this week, uh, I went back and watched the work print cut, which is, I guess, the version that was released before the changes were made to yeah, the original theatrical. Screenings, yeah, right. preview screenings. There were a few of those. And uh, it, I mean, it has some some temp tracks in the soundtrack, which actually I didn't think I didn't mind uh, towards the end of the film. But I I, enjoy, I really enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed seeing that sort of original version uh, and and the little changes that they made. Some of which I could see why they did, and some I didn't. You know, I I just I think uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to see so many different versions of this film. Do you, do you have a favorite version? Uh, I'm I'm okay with the final cut that came out, um, but I have to say I did like the narration, even though both Scott and Harrison Ford have come come out as thumbs down on the narration. And the last time I watched it in that version, uh, I could sort of 
feel the the hesitancy of, in in Ford's voice. I, I I think the first time around, I I felt it had a world weary tone that matched the noir the, thing. the noir feel, and yeah. it, it's kind of your gateway into this strange new future mm-hmm. that's also kind of retro-y in, yeah. in some ways and I, I thought it I thought it actually did work yeah and it um, helps explain some it offers transitions yes. between scenes that are a, a little confusing at first uh, I mean I've seen it so often now that I totally get it but maybe if you the first time seeing it which I like I said I can't remember you might be if there wasn't the narration but you know that cold fish that's what my wife called me you know it's like oh come on yeah yeah yeah. parts of it work and parts of it don't i I feel like maybe there could be a happy medium with it somewhere Mm -hmm. uh but it's i think with or without our the two ways we have to go but um it does explain things like the the weird street language that that people are speaking was it nadsack is it something? Yeah, I don't even know what it's whatever called. Whatever the name of the, yeah. the language Gaff is. Gaff uses it quite a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it gives us a heads up as to what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, but clearly the film was intended to be without it. And, uh, you know, you can, you can watch it with or without it. I, now, I, I have the, the stupid bloody plastic briefcase <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the one I've got too. <laughs> that has, what, five different cuts, I think? Yeah, it's got five and then the... It had some like you know memorabilia stuff that came with it. Yeah, I think there's like a plastic replica of the mm-hmm, car mm-hmm. in there. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Why did I buy that? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the the movies are great to have, but the rest of it is blah. Yeah, I think I did want a, a version with the narration, and maybe that was the only way I could get it uh-huh. in, in a decent looking copy. Rather, you know, other because I remember for the longest time the only way to get it was to have the Criterion laser disc, which some people don't even know there was a Criterion version of Blade Runner, but they did put out a cut, which I assume is in that briefcase somewhere. Um, that a was was widescreen, which at the time was not available. So it was the only way to get a widescreen copy of the film in its proper aspect ratio. It was the only way to get it with the narration um, in that version. Plus, it had the extra bits of violence that Embassy had stuck back in for its initial right. um, release, which also came out on laserdisc, but in a pan and scan version. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's been through so many iterations, and um, like as we said, there's five in that particular set. But there's, there's a couple it, more as but well. If yeah. you actually, if you want to be, yeah, if you want to be a nitpicker and look at ones, you know, all the different fine tunings, there's, yeah, seven. Yeah, I guess if you include like different preview screenings, I, I don't really. Yeah, and know I, or I don't care. even know if. Yeah, some of those just are lost now. Yeah, it's lost in time, like <laughs> tears in rain. Exactly. Yeah, and that's okay. You know, uh, I, I, I've, yeah, I have kept, I kept going back to this film, and uh, and I have, I, I've. I very much enjoyed it, though I will say this: um, when I was in my undergrad, I used the film as a sort of a sort of inspiration for some work I did. In uh, I was doing a visual arts uh, project, and uh, and I was very interested in cyberpunk imagery and uh, and themes. And I remember a classmate of mine saying, "Oh, that film is so misogynist," and I was like. I, I wouldn't hear it. I was like, you must be... What the hell? I thought he was so off base. And now, of course, I've seen it a number of times. I'm a little older. And I, the last time I saw it, I, I remembered what he said, and I really paid attention. And, uh, you know, there are three main female leads in the film. Two of them are shot to death. And the third has a scene where she is basically, I mean, where the consent, there's a sex scene, right. that where the consent is very questionable. And the lead, our hero, is basically the guy who kills the, I mean, 
you know, <laughs> uh, excuse me if this is spoilerific for you. This movie's been out for 35 years, so, you know. Yeah. But, but you know, the argument that the women are badly treated in this film, I think, is, is tr- I, like, I can't deny it. And all three are robots. Yes, or androids or androids. whatever yeah. whatever a replicant is because yes. it's that seems to shift over time too. It's like, true, and I think the new yeah. film changes what we think replicants actually are because I think I think when the first film came out, I you know I just assumed they were androids of yes. some sort, some with some kind of early version of AI that uh, you know allowed them to make choices and things like that, but but wasn't real. I didn't really know that I was supposed to think of them as as human. They're mm-hmm. just basically androids that have that in a few cases, have an instinct for self-preservation. That's right. They don't necessarily play by Asimov's rules, necessarily. No. But, uh, but as, of course, with the new film, they expand upon that idea, or or that the, the technology is, has uh, expanded to the point where we we can think of them as as close to human as humanly possible, if that's a, even a phrase. But, um, but it, it's interesting how the view of the film has changed over time, and um, you know, I, I, my, I, I remember my reaction to see, you know, opening up my copy of Leonard Milton's mo- Leonard Malton's movie guide and seeing it got one and a half stars. I was just like, what? How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. You know, how can it be yeah. rated lower than Laser Blast or any number of, you know, dubious two and a half star films even? Maybe, maybe two and a half stars would have been more of an insult than one and a half stars because one and a half stars is such an extreme reaction to mm-hmm. such a, you know, such a, in, in, you know, certainly a cult movie at the time, but also, you know, a film that over time has become more, shall we say, beloved um, or admired or, or what have you um, for its vision and its technical prowess, if, if not necessarily its, its storyline. Um, you know, and I actually got to ask him that in person. <laughs> it's like, and I, I don't know if they changed it over time because of the reaction, but I guess that was one of the more, you know, uh, virulently reacted to ratings in his book. Was what, like, did, what did he say? Well, you can't please everybody. <laughs> of course is what he said, yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's hard, you know, and he may not even have written that particular because I review, because I, I, I later learned that sometimes some of those ratings and reviews in the Malton Movie Guide are actually written by his film students. Wow. So it's, okay. it's, but he's got to kind of stand by them, I guess, because sure. his name's on the cover, but, it, you know, it might not have been him who put that in there anyway. But, uh, it's like okay, well, uh, I have to go back and read that capsule review to find out exactly what it's. You know, maybe they felt it didn't make any yeah. sense, or it was just like a lot of eye candy, the, the, with no the, substance. My my sort of uh, favorite film guide, uh, Time Out, which was the first I read regularly as a teenager, and uh, I remember they didn't like the first version much, and then they had a review of the '92 version, and their tune changed drastically. <laughs> I don't know if it was the same reviewer or not, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it has it is really it is really uh, grown in es- everyone's estimation and natural and as a result, now we've got uh, this sequel that arrived finally after <laughs> a lot of talk and a lot of gnashing of teeth and wringing of hands because I mean I, I certainly can't get on board with the idea that it's a it's that we should have sequels thirty five years later like I I don't I don't think that's that should be no one should be doing that <laughs> because you really can't recapture the magic of the thing and uh, so many years down the road I just feel like all the momentum is gone. Um, that said, I uh, I was pretty impressed with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I was impressed by its ambition. I was impressed by its look. 
Uh, I was impressed by how clearly Denis Villeneuve, the French-Canadian director who helmed it, uh, loves the original and and uses it as the basis for this new mystery. I mean, it is and it is a mystery. It's a mystery story in a way that uh, that furthers the original, but also uh, feels very much like you don't have to have seen the original. You could go to see this and it stands alone. How, how, what did you think about it? Uh, I really like the film, and I, I can't wait to go and see it again. I don't know. I think it's going to be playing in IMAX, so maybe that's that's my next step because we just we saw it on the biggest screen at Park Lane, but it's it's not quite the same as seeing it on, on an IMAX screen. So I might take advantage of that. Plus, the 3D tends to work better in IMAX, and it doesn't for me anyway. I'm my tired old brain doesn't doesn't like uh, the current you know digital 3D very much. If the film wasn't shot that way, because I remember I remember seeing. I remember Avatar was quite effective, and some other films that actually were shot in a 3D process, as opposed to being digitally made 3D after the fact, which is, I think, 95% of them are, are done that way these days. Um, but uh, but I, I did like it first time out, uh, and it did make me want to go back and re-experience it, because you know, you're either focusing on the visuals and the design, or you're focusing on the plot, and, uh, and trying to plumb all the layers of, of, of what's happening. Uh, you can't do both at once. <laughs> well, that's um, saying something because yeah, yeah, the exactly. scale, the scale of the film is—they have these enormous sets, and uh, and I think a lot of it mostly practical. Yeah, well, as, as we, you know, those of us who stayed through the credits, who notices there's a lot of Slavic names in the credits, and I think yeah. I think the bulk of what happened here was was shot in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that uh, when he goes to Vegas and he goes to that hotel casino, it's clearly not in Las Vegas. That is. Yeah, you know, that yeah. is Europe somewhere. This this is actually we might skate into spoiler territory this time. We yeah, should, that's should, that's true. That's we should true, be but... a little careful of that. But that's also if you've seen the trailer, you know that there is a desert. There's a desert sequence. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. well, and the, and the hotel, you know, classic looking building is in. But I mean, yeah. they did the same thing in the original, using the Bradbury building. Mm-hmm. You know, this great kind of Art Deco office building in Los Angeles, using that as a location. So the you know the I think Villeneuve. Uh, is very conscious of, of what fans expect, but also wants to kind of trump those expectations at the same time. So there's lots of in-jokes and nods to the original. I mean, obviously they're going to be nods to the original because it's a sequel, but they're, you know, specific things that are in the original kind of get referenced here in interesting ways. Um, and uh, yeah, they, 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 you know, they shot, I say the bulk of it in Eastern Europe just to, you know, obviously it's cheaper to shoot there because there's so many productions that are happening over there these days. But um, but also just because it gives it, you know, they can find practical locations that can give it a different look. And, you know, I'm sure his apartment building was, was one of these kind of, you know, it's not, doesn't look like a Los Angeles apartment no. building. No, it doesn't. And, and I, uh, yeah, I, I think the thing about it that, you know, makes a lot of sense and part of the reason that I, I did like, the things about it I did like, I had some, had some issues with it, which I'll come back to, but uh, but was that okay? So the film, the original film, was made thirty-five years ago. The new film is set thirty-plus years in the future from the original film. So the there's a certain poetry to that. Yes, <laughs> you know, we've almost reached the place that the original film was set in, which is 2019, uh, the future as envisioned from 1982. And now we're in 2049, and I, I, that, that 
that time that has passed allow has allowed for a lot of story to happen within the Blade Runner world. So they've they've uh, and they've allowed for that. So there's changes to the technology. There's changes to the replicants. They don't have the same problems they used to have. However, there are issues that things that happen in the first film. There are consequences and and uh, changes that are the characters in this film are having to live with as a result of what happened, what went down in the first movie. Uh, and I, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the mysteries of that. Um, and I, I, but mostly the thing about the new Blade Runner I really liked was the look and the feel of it and the music and all of those cinematic elements that I liked very much about the first film. It's not a, a re repetition of those, those things, but it is, there is some... You, you do it's you do feel like it's the same world and um, yeah and, and in terms of the things that I had some problems with I think that I think it's it, it feels a little bit like a post-apocalyptic movie um, in a way that the first one didn't the first one felt like this is an extension of our world where where the new one feels like something awful has happened and it's it's darker as mm. a result it's darker and it's colder. Uh, I, I don't feel like <clears throat> the characters. I'm I'm necessarily as warm towards Ryan Gosling's character as I was towards Harrison Ford's character. He's in definitely original. more of a blank slate. Yes, yeah, he is, and I and I also feel like the other supporting cast. You know, the the cast of the original those those four replicants who are trying to do something with their lives, and and then you add Rachel to that to that uh, that list. Uh, you know, they they all were very raw in a way. They were trying to manage their emotional realities with not without having the experience that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. To use the the line in the movie, um, and uh, yeah, and in this film, the uh, the characters they're interesting and they're diverse, but uh, they are there's just a there's a chilliness to them that I I didn't feel that like desperation uh, to try and and get answers to their problems before the the I inevitable death and uh and so yeah there was i i felt at a bit of a remove i guess yeah there's villeneuve isn't interested in filling in the blanks for us in in uh in a lot of ways uh, we have to kind of make assumptions about like, for example they refer to the blackout which you know kind of changed everything um but they don't necessarily specify what it is but then you know later on there's talk about radiation levels being mm -hmm. dangerous and and that kind of thing so we have to kind of infer what happened we, uh you know at one point um uh k or joe or whatever uh gosling's uh blade runner is called depending on where you are in the film uh has to go to san diego and it's a it's a blasted post-nuclear wasteland populated by parasitic humans. So it's pretty much just like Comic-Con. Uh, <laughs> nice. I, very nice. Okay. I, I, yes. I thought that was a fun little joke for at Comic-Con's expense. But uh, this is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the fact that, that San Diego has been laid waste. I, I, yeah. I, there I are actually funny. some short films available online you can watch if you want to explore further the, the time between films. There are three shorts that you can you can see on YouTube that explain some of what happened with the blackout and and uh, Terrell's Terrell organization uh, bankrupt and then Wallace coming in and, and becoming the purveyor of new replicants that are less problematic. Uh, that's that, that's worth if people who aren't aware. That's worth checking out. I think after you've seen the the new film. <laughs> And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. We're uh, deep in the middle of replicant territory, talking about Neo Los Angeles and environs and the new 
long-awaited, long, long-awaited sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, directed by Canadian Denis Villeneuve. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting to note that uh, Ridley Scott is on hand as a, I guess, executive producer. Yeah. But but and and I wonder kind of what his because uh, I because it feels like he gave Villeneuve pretty free reign. Um, to, to do what he wanted with Scott's original vision of the film from uh, from the early 80s. I think I think that Scott was originally going to direct it, but he's so busy, this guy. I mean, he is yeah. his production company has a huge body of work now. I mean, I think in Hollywood, Scott is as well regarded as a producer and in, as he is a, a director. And uh, yeah, it's some, there was some scheduling issue and he just felt like, I think he wanted to focus on his bring back another one of his films that he, he franchised that he began alien and he wanted to focus on alien covenant and some of those those other films and he left this one this script to uh to another filmmaker and you know i really like scott and then we're going to get to talking about some of his yes. earlier films as part of this conversation uh but um i'm glad that he didn't do it himself i, f- I sort of feel like like and he chose they chose very well the filmmaker to to further this world it it uh i think it it works that well just by virtue of you know Villeneuve's heat right now and and his ability to tell stories in a certain way i mean the guy who directed arrival and sicario i think is well chosen for this this project on oh, prisoners yeah yeah i i think it was wise of uh scott to kind of just take a uh, man in the shadows <laughs> kind of roll with this project you know just just because you, you think of like the sour taste that uh the star wars prequels and indiana jones and the crystal skull left in everybody's mouths um you know you, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who would rave about either of those projects even though they were helmed by the the, the people that, yeah. that brought them to light in the first place um and the success of uh the star the, the current batch of star wars films at least the two that we've had so far um you know it's it's uh it's Maybe not a bad idea to have a a director with some vision at the helm and mm-hmm. and just sort of be the silent guiding hand, perhaps behind the scenes. Although, uh, from what I gather from uh, the Star Wars films, that the directors for that can be kind of dis- interchangeable or disposable. They have been uh, li- lately, yeah. They totally have been. But but, but this I think is a little different. Yeah, I think Villeneuve is definitely in control of the material. It's yeah. the, the pacing is definitely more in his realm of things, um, and that's the that's the one thing that people are kind of either struggling with or marveling at the most i think with uh, with the new blade runner is it's is, long it's long it's it's two hours it's just you know under three hours two hours and 45 minutes uh maybe feels like three hours but you know as as more than one review has said that there's enough going on within the frame that you're not even though it feels lugubrious and is taking its time and is very luxurious with its pacing there's always something to look at there's always something happening to keep your you know if 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 Ryan Gosling is just standing there staring off into space. Well, I'll look at those statues that are kind of <laughs> filling up the, the yeah, frame. Or yeah, the, the, yeah. There's always something within view to kind of keep your mind off of how long it's taking to get from point A to, to point B yeah. in this film. And the visuals are just out of this world. I, there's things going on with the special effects in this film that I've never seen before in any film. Like a, there is a, uh, there's a holographic character who does things that I... I would just kind of like I no that is really yes. weird. <laughs> it's really different um, when she interlocks. Yes, yeah. Which I won't say anything more about. But that, when when that happened, my brain just went, oh yeah, geez, yeah, that's brilliant. Though I will say also that uh, that I think the 
the screenwriters and the director have been paying attention to some recent science fiction. Uh, I think that uh, Blade Runner 2049 owes a thematic debt to films like Children of Men, to uh, Her, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, Spike Jones film, and... Um, Maybe Gattaca? Uh, Gattaca, yeah. Matt, even Mad Max Fury Road, actually. They, there's a line in the script of, about trees that is paraphrased yes. from... Uh, from Mad Max, uh, and uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's something to see. And I think uh, I said this uh, on social media the other day that uh, in terms of films this year that deserve to be seen on the big screen, this is number two after Dunkirk. It just like I I I don't know what it's going to be like on a small screen, but it's so worth catching in the cinema. Well, that's and again, that's that's the thing with the pacing. If if uh, if you watch this at home, it'll feel like a completely different movie. Like it really needs to be seen on a big screen, and hopefully, uh, by the time you hear this, it will still be available to be seen in the theater. Maybe you know it's probably the kind of film that'll come back in revival form, perhaps down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I, I I think people are gonna you know be savvy enough to know that this has got a bit of a sense of spectacle to it. I mean, as does anything with Ridley Scott's name attached to yeah. it. I mean, he's, you know, the, the these days, the, the, the king of the commercial visual stylists, yes. as it were. And, yeah. And, um, and with, and there's absolutely no doubt that Scott is got an incredible eye, like his, all of his films, whatever the subject, and he has bounced around in genre. Yes. Uh, is they look amazing. You can guarantee they look amazing. You can guarantee they'll be well-made. Uh, that said, he's not, a traditional auteur in you know to use that that expression he is he is um he's a filmmaker who doesn't write so he chooses his scripts carefully and he's chosen very well sometimes and sometimes he's chosen quite poorly <laughs> so you know his the actual if i you know the actual creative um quality of the films has varied greatly uh, but I think, yeah, I think we're going to talk about, I mean, all right, so his big movies that most people know him from are his second and third films, with Alien and Blade Runner. He also directed Thelma and Louise. He directed uh, Gladiator, which, of course, won multiple Academy Awards. And, uh, yeah, and more recently, he directed The Return to Alien, uh, that property um, he directed... Uh, uh, Prometheus and, and Covenant. A- Alien Covenant and The Martian, which was a huge hit. So I, the guy is is approaching eighty. He's going to be eighty later this year, and he is working his butt off. And I got I got lots of time for for a Ridley Scott film. They're always worth seeing. Now there are others like Exodus, Gods and Kings, oh. uh, a legend from the mid eighties with Tom Cruise, which looks gorgeous but is not good. Uh, and and but uh, I own a copy, of course. Of course, <laughs> uh, you know, and I and there are a few in there that I really wouldn't recommend. But but uh, yeah, a good year from two thousand six, I I felt was the wrong director and the wrong star for such light material. The star was Russell Crowe. Oh, he made that um, that Robin Hood movie with Russell Crowe as well, which is not great. But um, yeah, we went back and we watched his first film, uh, The Duelists. Which you had in your collection, uh, Stephen. Yeah, I've been a big fan of this for a long time, this movie. And uh, it's, uh, you know, because... I, and I came to it fairly late. Like, I think I watched it for the first time on Laserdisc in the early 90s at some point. And I'd already seen... You know, by that time I'd seen Alien and Blade Runner. And some of the current films. Um, Black Rain, which we'll probably talk about a little bit. Yeah, I want to ask you, because you saw that. I, didn't, uh, I, I've se- I haven't seen it since it came out. Sort of 
pseudo neo noir set in the you know the American cop running amok in the Japanese crime crime world. Uh, and I guess I probably would have seen Thelma and Louise by that point. And um, and after Thelma and Louise, he was kind of on a hot streak after having a couple of duds. Uh, and of course, it would be followed by a few duds as well. But um, you know, so that's around the time that I saw it for the first time, and it's it's uh, it's it's a tale based on a story by Joseph Conrad, who also wrote uh, Heart of Darkness, which became transmogrified into Apocalypse Now by Coppola. And, uh, you know, and this has a similar feel to Heart of Darkness with a soldier on this kind of eternal quest for glory or, you know, or at least, you know, his own his own uh, sense of, uh, of honor as uh, we have we have two soldiers fighting duels throughout the Napoleonic Wars <laughs> and to this this endless debt, this endless and one might say imaginary debt of honor um yeah it, it in that regard it, it's a little bit like <laughs> it's nothing like it but i it, it made me think of highlander <laughs> yeah a little bit <laughs> you know? sure uh yeah yeah keith carradine is this very you know uh prim and and proper and and seemingly fairly reasonable soldier yeah, yeah, who gets who gets the assignment to go and tell another soldier who's had a had a duel earlier in the day uh, the other soldier played by uh, Harvey Keitel, he, to tell him that he is being arrested because he killed the wrong man. And Keitel takes it very personally. <laughs> he basically blames the messenger, and he he challenges him to a duel. And the the duel is is not... The, it's, the initial duel isn't... Nothing is decided. So it just continues on as we go through the years. And these two men crossing paths again and again with the Kaitel character never feeling like he's received his due, his satisfaction. He's never had satisfaction. And uh, and he just plays this sort of, he haunts the life of our our hero who goes on to, you know, has, who has love affairs and he, is, he grows he, his stature and his rank. He grows and he, and he goes to different parts of the world and he fights in different parts of the, this war. And uh, and yeah, you get these different landscapes, uh, and it's and it, it shows that that Scott already had that in his in his pocket for having been a, uh, a director in advertising commercials. He already knew his way around a gorgeous image, and it is a lovely movie to look at. Uh, it's it's and it's, and I think uh, it's great performances. I I really liked seeing the Duelists again. Yeah, it's it's funny that it came out. Uh within a couple of years of uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. And, uh, you know, I think maybe at the time it came out, maybe it suffered by comparison at the time. I think it's a film that didn't really find its audience until Ridley Scott became a little better established as a filmmaker and people would go back to it. Um, you know, B- Barry Lyndon was much more acclaimed, although some people ridiculed it at the time as well. Uh, and it, st- it stands up really well. Like, you can read a lot of allegories into it. You know, it could have been a statement on Vietnam with this ridiculous, you know, fighting for to, to save face in a ridiculous duel or a battle, as it were, um, over the course of history. And uh, so there's that aspect to it. And of course, Vietnam originally was a French battle, which eventually got pawned off on the U.S., as uh, many are learning from the uh, current Ken Burns series, which uh, I think just wrapped up on PBS recently. Uh, so you know you can you can read a lot of allegory into the film as well. Uh, so it has some nice uh, sort of hidden or subtextual meaning to it, and uh, it's it's a gorgeous film. It's it's, it's kind of odd that uh, the two leads, the French military officers played by Americans, 
and uh, which is very odd, especially with considering Keitel's fairly strong regional uh, accent, which he tries to downplay here. Um, and I mean, I like I, I like Keith Carradine, but he does feel like, I mean, in my mind, all those roles he's played as sort of a cowboy actor sort <laughs> yes. of form this a little bit. Yeah, and. And, you know, we talked about this while we were watching it, that Carradine has this very relaxed style of acting that was in vogue in the 70s and is definitely not in vogue these days. Uh, and it it feels a little strange. Maybe, and maybe that helps it years later. Maybe that helps him feel a little otherworldly or, you know, play this character from the past because he has this kind of, not mannered, but, but very kind of uh, un- informal acting style that mm-hmm. he has. Uh and maybe it helps him more than Keitel, whereas Keitel's a little more hot-blooded and has this kind of New York, maybe, method style to what he's doing. And then it's narrated by Stacy Keach. So so it's odd that a British director making a film about these French characters uses American leads for for, for three prominent uh, parts in the film. And then and then he basically just uses British character actors for, the, for everything else. Uh, you know, Albert Finney is third build, yet he only has one scene, although he's great in it. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. Albert Finney, for, yeah. for God's sake. Um, uh, Edward Fox shows up uh, as uh, one of uh, Keitel's officers for a few scenes and is, is great. Um, and as as we noted, Pete Postlethwaite has his first film role. He doesn't uh, get a line, though. And he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a single line. He plays a barber shaving this general. And uh, I actually got to interview him years later when he was here in Halifax uh, for uh, the Divine Ryans, the, uh, the Newfoundland drama about a, a family. And um, uh, he was here at the Atlantic Film Festival and I got to sit down and have a pint with Pete Postlethwaite, which is one of my great glories of my life, was just shooting the breeze with this great character actor who's sadly no longer with us. And, uh, and I asked him about you know being in The Duelists and he just talked about you know how S- Scott had a, had a detailed backstory for this character who doesn't have any dialogue and he, he said that he but you know he you know informed of, of this guy's life who would I, I, I'm vaguely remembering this but but how you know he wanted to have glory and you know join the army and, and be this great warrior and winds up as this barber for the for the officers and you know this very lowly position but at least he doesn't you know have to get in the line of fire so um, you know for, for a guy who's on screen for like just a few minutes, you know, which which says a lot about the attention to detail that Scott puts into these movies. That that he would have this rich backstory for a character who you know nothing about, and never learn anything about, uh, and is never seen again. <laughs> uh, I think it says a lot about uh, it. You know, certainly at least in the early films, what uh, what kind of uh, level of subtext goes into those uh, those movies. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. So my memories of Black Rain are a little fuzzy. Uh, As I do, they should be. Yeah, I do recall that after uh, I was following Scott's career, I saw Legend, which left me not all that impressed. Then I watched Someone to Watch Over Me, which I also remember thinking was 
not that awesome. It's like, this is the director of Alien and Blade Runner? Like, these aren't these aren't really grabbing me. And then there was Black Rain. I was like, okay, so this feels like it might be a, a good one because of the style of it. It was a cop drama set in Japan, and, uh, and you know, Michael Douglas was pretty hot at the time as a leading actor, and then uh, Andy Garcia is in it. And my memory of it basically now is, I just remember walking out and going, oh, that was kind of meh. But uh, <laughs> my, I remember the, the scene of motorcycles driving in the rain, in Tokyo and a guy with a samurai sword and someone getting decapitated uh, in the street. Uh, and I that thought is, that was a pretty cool scene. That is probably the most memorable. That's the scene that everyone remembers. Oh, well, that's uh, one I remember. And, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a great film, but I, I rewatched it recently and uh, and I, I found a lot to like in it. Uh, you know, the whole... Uh, and from what I gather, um, Ridley Scott just really wanted to make a film in Tokyo. <laughs> basically okay. like i don't know that he was necessarily a hired gun on this project i, I imagine michael douglas has probably uh, had a hand in producing as well sure. as he tended to do uh at that time in his career and uh you know it's it's it starts off um you know where he's kind of he's kind of that weird 80s cop construct of like you know he doesn't play by the rules and he's kind of a rebel and he rides a motorcycle and it starts off with this fairly incredulous motorcycle race along the Manhattan waterfront from the Brooklyn Bridge to the Williamsburg Bridge which is like how does that even work like how do you how does that happen um and uh you know so he proves his street cred and his his cool tough guy uh stance he's also like he's under investigation for corruption um so he's he's got kind of a dirty edge to him as a cop and he's of course he's divorced and he's like up to his ears in debt and all this kind of stuff so it's just kind of like the stereo, you know, he's just this close to being Stallone and Cobra. <laughs> right, right, which is which, very much a, uh, uh, came out around the same time. Yeah, which is probably the ultimate stereotype uh, uh, 80s action movie cop role, which yeah. would then be parodied by Schwarzenegger in uh, The Last Action Hero. So he's, he's not quite at that ridiculous point, but he's real close. Um, and he and his partner, Andy Garcia, get... Uh, you know, they witness a uh, a uh, yakuza uh, execution in an Italian restaurant in New York, and they are uh, they they manage to nab the the uh, perpetrator, who's this uh, psycho, you know, uh, up and coming yakuza dude, uh, and they're assigned to escort him back to Tokyo, um, even though they want you know they want him first, sort of thing, and then you know he says, well, you know, after that we get to bring him back for this crime or whatever. Anyway, it's very convoluted, but they, they get into Tokyo and he escapes through some some devious means. And they, of course, now they two uh, American cops on the loose in Tokyo. And it's kind of funny because I think he even shot some of it to be, to look like, uh, you know, like because Tokyo was kind of the inspiration for the look of Blade Runner with all the, the advertising signs and and and, and the, just the, the rampant claustrophobic nature of of the downtown. And so I think he shoots bits of Tokyo to look like Blade Runner because it inspired that look yeah. in the first place. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and keep in mind, this is only this is only seven years after Blade Runner. It's right. not, you know, so it's actually not that long in the rear view at this point. But um, you know, I, I think Michael Douglas's performance is probably the most dated thing about this film because he's playing a very of the moment kind of character. You know, the, the kind that would you know soon vanish from the screen. Thank goodness. Uh, and. Uh, you know, Andy Garcia has is having fun with his role. He's actually, you know, one of the delights of the movie because, uh, you know, I forgot 
what an engaging actor because he sort Andy Garcia sort of settled into these kind of tough hard guy kind of roles and here he's kind of a little looser a little a little um almost wackier mm-hmm. <laughs> in a sense yeah uh in a way that he probably wouldn't be in a few years down the road he was also yeah around that time he was untouchables he did really well in the late yeah. 80s uh, godfather now, 3 yeah now unfortunately he's you know he's in i saw a trailer the other day for geostorm oh. uh, which looks really awful uh yeah, uh, Jerry Butler. It's a Jerry Butler film. It's a <laughs> course, sci-fi yeah. action uh, disaster movie, but uh, he plays the president. So yeah. Well, anyway, the, yeah. The, I think the last thing I saw him in was the Oceans movies. Yeah, yeah. He, it was pretty great in that. Which he's okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, he plays this tough casino owner, gets his butt handed to him by uh, by uh, Clooney, and then has to kind of be in on it in the in the third film, and so he gets to kind of play against his own image as it is these days and so he has some fun with that i guess so uh hopefully maybe that's made him a little more self-aware i don't know yeah yeah um now ridley scott had a triumph after black rain he saw he did uh, thelma and louise yes. from the cali curry script and that was everyone loved that but then he was a, another sort of low point through the 90s 1492 the conquest of paradise which i haven't actually even seen uh, we got White Squall. Yeah, not great. G.I. <laughs> uh, Jane, actually, I remember being better than the review said. And it gave uh, Demi Moore a great role to to be in. Uh, of course, Gladiator in 2000, again, revived his fortunes. And that one was beloved by many. Uh, and following that, he, he did Hannibal, which which I, I think is pretty ill-advised. Uh, but, of course, it was this a, a huge sequel to a film that, uh, that was adored. So... You know, uh, yeah, I don't that's know. a weird one because the book was hated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, people hated the book, and then they went, but it's going to make money, so we'll make a movie yeah. out of it anyway. And they put Ridley Scott in charge because it's going to be shot in Italy and, mm-hmm. and, and look great. And and, uh, and you know, you can watching Hannibal is weird because you're watch you're watching him trying to stip, steer the ship away from the rocks. Yeah, but. There's nothing that can be done. No, because it's yeah. the story. It stinks to be it stinks on yeah. to begin with. And I remember it was explicit in a way that the first one or the Silence of the Lambs wasn't, and it didn't need to be exactly. in some ways. Uh, so then there was Black Hawk Down, which uh, you know there's some issues, uh, sort of neo-colonialist issues about that film, but it's a as a war picture. For what it is, it's, it's successful. Yeah, pretty successful. I gotta say. I I mean, it's it's a terrific cast, and it's remarkably impressive how it uses spatial dynamics. Again, that's Scott's, uh, you know, bread and butter as a director. He, you know where you are at all times in this this sort of scene that he is he is shooting. Uh, yeah, and then Matchstick Men was an oddity, a sort of a comedy drama, yeah, it's uh, a, crime it's, crime it's, movie. It's an odd title for him, but it, but a very warm and 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 funny comedy. That's it's very low key, more of a Shaggy Dog kind of story but and it's one of Nicolas Cage's better late career roles yeah uh you know it's it, I definitely recommend if you haven't seen Matchstick Man definitely track that one down yeah um now we both watched Kingdom of Heaven the director's cut now there was a theatrical cut I remember seeing it in the cinema and being like ah you know that's a pretty grand epic period drama set in during the crusades um and uh and then uh I got a hold of the Blu-ray of the director's cut, which is longer, quite a bit longer than the original it's theatrical. Three hours, yeah, it's three and hours change, and change. Yeah, uh, and I watched it, and uh, yeah, I mean, I really quite liked it. I felt like, you know, the reason it got made, of course, was the success of Gladiator. It has, it's a swords and sandals picture yeah. above all, but it's a beautiful looking one. Of course, it has this epic scope. It has the, yeah, uh, Scott is fond of particulate. 
in the air, like snow that just swirls around yeah. and never lands, you know, and there's a lot of that in this film. It's incredible. Uh, the sets are unbelievable. They, it feels like they, they recreate uh, a Jerusalem of the 12th century, and, uh, and it's got an incredible cast. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's got Michael Sheen, David Thewlis, Liam Neeson, uh, future Game of Thrones cast member, members, Alexander Siddig, Ian Glenn, and Nikolai Coster waldau and then look out in supporting roles, Brendan Gleeson, Jeremy That's Irons, yeah. uh, and uh, British actor John Finch, who uh, is pretty great. I've even heard that Edward Norton is in it, but I actually don't remember seeing He's him in there in somewhere. It. He's in there <laughs> somewhere. Uh, and uh, in the center of it all is Orlando Bloom, who plays a... Uh, He's, he's a blacksmith who is the son of, of Liam Neeson's character, and so he sort of inherits Neeson's sort of nobility, uh, and, and, uh, and then he becomes the protector of Jerusalem somehow. And it's a, <laughs> it's a little hard to believe. Orlando Bloom is an he's actor. He's definitely the weak link in the film. He's, you know, I think there was about a, uh, you know, there was like 10 minutes there where he was a movie star, and then uh, Elizabethtown happened, and that wasn't very well received, and this actually wasn't uh, a hit either, I don't no. think, the Kingdom of Heaven, based on oh. how expensive it was to make. And we don't see Norton, because he's wearing a mask the whole time. <laughs> right, that's he's, it. He's the, he's king, he's, he's the king he's Baldwin, the, king, the sort of, right. in, you know, the de facto king of Jerusalem. Right, There's a big, this is a huge cast, it's With, easy to uh, lose people. He's got leprosy, so he wears a mask for the whole film. Um... But uh, it is a, uh, it's quite a film. It, I, I really enjoyed watching it again. Uh, Ava Green, of course, is amazing, even though she kind of plays a character who's somewhat the, the she, she's the, uh, the trophy for some of these uh, men who are fighting one another. Uh, but she's, you know, she's always interesting in films, and she's great here. Uh, and Neeson gets to say, I once fought for two days with an arrow through my testicles. <laughs> so, you know, that's why. That's, there, you, when you get that kind of dialogue, it's, it's, worth, it's worth checking out. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, watching this in the, the longer version. It's, uh, you might want to, if you watch it, you might want to break it up uh, in, into halves. Uh, I think there's like almost a clean, like there's almost, you could put an intermission right at the middle point of this film and watch it in two 90 minute chunks. But, um, but you know, I, I found it pretty compelling all the way through and, and, uh, you know, I, I tried to kind of follow along with the IMDB, uh, alternate versions list of, of what they changed in this film. And you get, it's exhausting. They, they put so much stuff back into it. It's almost like they cut out the middle third of the movie pretty mm. much, uh, to get you to the final siege and battle scenes at the end, which are truly remarkable. Um, you know, and relying a lot on practical effects more so than the, the CGI, I think. You know, maybe I'm sure the large crowd scenes where there's a lot of digital imagery going on there, but I think for a lot of stuff, there's a lot of model work and, you know, mat work and sort of the more traditional uh, modes of special effects just to, to give it that realism. But but in the middle, you, you miss a lot of the intrigue, you miss a lot of uh, the motivations of the multiple parties because, you know, obviously the, the, at the Crusades, it's the, the Christians versus the infidels. Uh, and versus the Muslims, but but uh, at the same time, there's warring factions within, within each side. Within and, each side, yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of that got swept away when they yeah. they cut it down. And it's funny. I was reading something about Ridley Scott where someone was saying he's you know he gets to make these big films because he tends to play ball with the studios and with the producers, and he'll acquiesce to, to their changes and suggestions. And that's why the you know the films often suffer when they get to the big screen because there's a lot of compromises. But somehow he's able, even with the counselor, you know, there's there's two versions of that available. But right. inevitably, you know, because because he's such a marquee name, he's able to get his whatever his vision 
initially was, he's able to restore it in time for the home video release. Right, especially if the film was not well received yes. in cinemas. There's an, a reason, there's a marketing reason for letting him go back into the editing suite and adding back some of the stuff that maybe was taken out. And, and Kingdom of Heaven is one of those films where there's, it's, you know, just, they just had a vision of people's eyes glazing over at a three-hour epic. But it's, 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 it's such a descendant of those epics of, of you know, things like Cleo, things like Cleopatra and so on um, from the 60s. You know, and it, it, it tries to achieve that similar scale. I think it succeeds in a lot of ways. It, it feels like the last sort of old school epic uh, that actually works anyway. Yeah, and I think politically it's interesting. You know, you get to you definitely get the perspective of the various sides of this battle. And uh, yeah, I, I think people should go and, and discover that as in terms of, of maybe underappreciated Scott. Uh, and yeah, and you mentioned also the counselor, which uh, I <laughs> I didn't love, but is interesting in that it's mostly in that it's Cormac McCarthy's first and so far I think only screenplay that he wrote directly for the screen rather than having one of his books ad- adapted. So though that said, it's no no country for old men or uh, the road, but it is interesting because you really hear his novelist's voice yes. in all the characters. It's so wordy. And to a point where it's just like, what is, people don't talk like this. What is going on? But there's a pleasure in in how he crafts those words. Uh, and it's a great cast. Fassbender, Pitt, uh, Penelope Cruz, uh, Javier Bardem. Uh, yeah, there's there is at least one scene in it, though, that made me shake my head. I there I, I don't even really know what to say about that. But uh, <laughs> but it is um, but it is it is it is something to see. And, and if you've seen the film, you know exactly which scene we're talking about yeah. without even saying it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, uh, Cameron Diaz is involved, but it is uh, and a windshield. It is very very. It's a, a really unusual piece. It feels like a a real uh it, it's it's a damaged film it's it's it didn't work but it's still interesting yeah and i haven't seen the longer cut of that yet i remember i remember um leaving the theater when i saw it in the theater and i haven't watched it since but thinking that wasn't a good movie but it sh- was damned entertaining yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know and, and and a number of his films kind of meet that uh that kind of criteria i guess and that well, it wasn't it wasn't good, but I wasn't bored yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And it's it is heavy handed and way over the top, and and sometimes you have to learn to appreciate that in a in a film, I guess. Uh, you know, I, and now I just want to watch the longer version to see. You know, I've I've heard conflicting things about it. I've heard it does is improved by whatever changes are made to the uh, the uh, unedited or unrated version or whatever you want to call it. I can't imagine what those would be, but maybe it's just some like with some of the other. Uh, director's cuts or extended versions or whatever it's those little bits of character and and maybe subtext that get put back in i mean like kingdom of heaven it's obviously you know meant to be an epic of the gulf war era as it were and uh you know kind of drive home the the foolhardiness of, of getting involved in in conflicts in the middle east um and uh what the the counselor has to say about modern the modern business environment i guess maybe that's deepened by the longer version but uh you know at some point i'm gonna have to revisit it and see what that version has to say about it so that has been lens me your ears the podcast where steven and i talk about new movies that are in cinemas and perhaps more obscure older movies that helped inspire them 
Today we've been talking about Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. We've been going back and uh, and looking at the work of Ridley Scott, who directed the original and produced the sequel. Uh, and incidentally, uh, Stephen, uh, Scott's next movie, yes, I looked on IMDb. Uh, he uh, He's recently, of course, directed Alien Covenant. He's doing another Alien film, which apparently he's in pre-production for. Wrap up the, the new trilogy. Yeah, but he's actually got another film out this year called All the Money in the World, which is about the uh, John Paul Getty grandson kidnapping starring Kevin Spacey and Michelle Williams. Uh, which, I mean, you know, okay, that's interesting. It's set in the early 70s, so another period film for him. Yeah, I uh, see the posters are up for it already. I saw a poster for it at Park Lane the other day. So, well, uh, if it's planning to come out between now and, and the holidays, I'm guessing it must be aiming for uh, for awards consideration. Yes, that's, well, it's that time of year. Uh, and then he's going to work on the Battle of Britain. So a war, <laughs> a war movie, you know. Oh, Not oh. that we haven't already had a movie about the Battle of Britain, but yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, so that's Ridley Scott. Dunkirk uh, fever is catching yeah, on. Yeah, seriously. And that, <laughs> that guy is super busy, and, you know, I hope he gets to make plenty more movies. Um, now, Lends Me Your Ears, uh, we are reachable um, by email, Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. And uh, you can also find my work. I'm a blogger. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and it's at halifaxbloggers.ca. Gee, and what does that name come from? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually from Chinatown, but Blade Runner is totally oh, related. Right, sure, totally. Go for it. <laughs> I thought it was a Blade Runner. No, it, it, it could very well be. I'll <laughs> the eyeball play in the new one, I guess. There you go. Uh, and, uh, I, I'm an arts writer for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax, and you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e. Oh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, too. You can find me through the, the blog. Uh, Lends me your ears. Uh, sorry. Flaw on the Iris is the, uh, is the blog. And Lends me your ears is the podcast. And what else can we say? Oh, we've got a Patreon account. So if you feel like sending us some coins, feel absolutely free. We love to get some support to do this kind of thing. And a big props to our producers at Village Soundcast Network and to CKDU that airs our show every second Tuesday at 5.30 uh, for your kind support. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Lens Me Your Ears today. And I also want to send a shout out to uh, the provider of our music, and that is the Halifax jazz band Gypsophilia, which uh, sadly are calling it a day after many years of providing fine, cool jazz to uh, to fans in Halifax and across the country. The, yes, October 13th, uh, Friday the 13th is the Farewell uh, Gypsophilia show, so if you're listening to this on CKDU, you still have a chance to catch their very last performance, but uh, if you're listening to us uh, via the, the interwebs, uh, you're out of luck, but uh, you can still buy their records, of course, and we recommend that you check them out. 